Well, good morning, good morning again, and I have announcements for us. I forgot my notes, Kate. Thank you. You got me. Um, this coming Saturday is the partnership class, and that is a chance if you're new to Brookview and you're just like, what, 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 to so get the what's. In two weeks, thank you, thank you. Okay, two weeks, not this coming Saturday. Oh, that gives me some time, you guys. I was like, ooh, that's a lot. Okay, um, but the partnership class is a chance for you to hear like how to partner at Brookview, how to, just an inside look at the family. Jason teaches it, and it's awesome. So, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so, but we do need you to sign up for that because you'll get a booklet and we have some food for you and we want to make sure that there's plenty of coffee. Um, and so you can do that by texting the word partner to the Brookview number or filling out your online communication card. And then the day after that, super fun, we are going to be having a brunch here as part of our church service. And um, it, the theme is gratitude. And so um, it's like Friendsgiving is the idea. And we are in need of some help with bringing casseroles and some yogurt and some fruit and that kind of stuff. And so um, if you signed up at Ignite to bring a casserole, um, I already signed you up on the sign up uh, link. And so if you text the word brunch to the Brookview number, you'll get a link to a digital sign-up that says how many casseroles we're still in need of, how many yogurts we want, what type of fruit we're hoping for. Um, and so if you sign up for that, then we will get in touch with you, give you all the details, answer any questions that you might have. So text the word brunch to that Brookview number. You could also mark your communication card, um, your Connect card online or on your seat, and I would be happy to email you or text you that digital link as well. Um, I already mentioned the Communication Connect cards. We just love for you to fill those out. And if you're watching from home, um, we love hearing from you. So that's all I got. I love you guys. One of the most effective evangelists of the last few centuries is a guy named D.L. Moody. He was one of nine children born to a mother who struggled to keep food on the table. He was a shoe salesman in Boston with only a fifth grade education. Uh, Moody came to faith at 17 and began preaching to overlooked, marginalized teens shortly afterward. In time, he went on to travel the world and preach to crowds all over the U.S. and Europe as large as 30,000. And many consider him the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. 
And while the fruitfulness of his ministry speaks for itself, his methodology was neither innovative nor impressive. In the modern era, like, when you see swells of salvation, it's often tied to some new innovation. People start coming to Jesus in waves because of something new, a new technology, a new method, a new way of doing church. You know, a new tool comes out like the Jesus film or the Alpha Course or a new way of doing church, okay, the seeker-sensitive model, the purpose-driven model, the emerging church model, the cell church model, the house church model. It's a lot of models, folks. And so there's often some novelty that sort of explains why evangelism is, quote, like working. And Moody's story is a, a compelling exception to the rule. His primary evangelistic strategy was good, old-fashioned prayer. Moody carried a list of, among other things that he did with, he was praying all the time, but he carried a list of 100 names in his pocket every day of his adult life. There were 100 people in his life who didn't know the love of God in Jesus. And Moody labored regularly in prayer for each one of them by name. He pleaded with God to reveal his eternal love in a way that each of those people could see. And you guys, when, when Moody died, 96 of them had come to Jesus. That's insane. Okay, I mean, a 96% success rate. When I was in high school, that was an A. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would take that, wouldn't you? But the story gets, like, even, even better. At Moody's funeral, the four remaining people all attended, and independently, each were so moved by his life in the service that during the funeral, independently, all four of the rest of them came to faith. Now, that story to me is, is it's like, it's just beautiful. It is inspiring. It is, it is godlike. And it's reflective of a dynamic that I have seen in my life again and again that there is a powerful link between prayer and new life. And this isn't just something that like, I've watched from afar or I've studied about or heard about. You guys, this is, this is my story. Uh, many of you know, maybe some of you don't know, I was not born a pastor. Uh, and I didn't grow up in the church. I, I was mostly kind of left on my own to wrestle through all the great existential questions. What is humanity? Where did we come from? Is there life after death? What do I make of God? What is a good person? Who is a good person? What is the good life? And so growing up, I got very little help thinking through that stuff. And by middle school, after taking biology, I landed. I decided all of life is a cosmic accident produced by time and chance. There's, there's no God, no meaning, no such thing as real goodness. No such thing as real love. Feelings are all just evolutionary instincts that have been bred into us, instincts that serve to propagate our species. The way to the good life is to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. And the pursuit of that objective, in the pursuit of that objective, it's every person for themselves. It is survival of the fittest. So I'll either make a life for myself or I won't, but I am alone in this world. And so for 17 years, there were very few voices that challenged my view of life. And of course, I was arrogant and I was scared. 
and anxious and judgmental and selfish. And I developed destructive habits and addictions of all kinds, and I felt, I felt very alone. I had plenty of people, I had lots of social stuff, but what I lacked was deep, authentic, transparent, love-exchanging relationships. And then starting at 17, I suddenly found myself surrounded by Christ followers. They were everywhere. A few friends from school started going to this thing called Young Life, and some of those guys were in a small group called Campaigners. And one of my friends would, would grab me, like in the halls at school or whatever, and say to, he would say to this to me all the time. He would be like, Jason, me and the guys, we pray for you every week. We pray that God will open your eyes to his love for you. He loves you, man. He loves you. He really loves you. And one day, you're going to see it. I know it. I know you will. We're praying for you. And I was like, shut up, fool. <laughs> but I, I have to admit, there's a part of me that kind of liked it. It felt good that they cared about me enough to be thinking about me and enough to pray for me. It felt good that, that, that this was something that, that they were all doing together on, on my behalf, even though I wasn't into it and it didn't make sense to me. And on top of that, I had someone else in my life just laboring for me in prayer my whole life. So I was raised as the only child of a single mom, and my mom was raised in the church, but it went completely sideways, and she didn't want anything to do with it as an adult. And it was always a source of huge tension with her mom. So my mom's mom lived in a nursing home in North Dakota, and um, she suffered from MS, and she was hospitalized more than half of her adult life. And on top of that, she was born very, very poor, very impoverished, with a major birth defect. Um, she had a hair lip and a cleft palate, and because they didn't have any money, it did not get repaired properly. And so she was severely disfigured and very, very hard to understand. Her speech was so garbled. But you guys, that woman, she loved Jesus with all of her heart. And, and she prayed for me to know Jesus from the day I was born. So we would drive to see her every other summer in her nursing home in North Dakota. And my relationship with her was limited to those every other year trips and then a few super uber frustrating conversations on the phone a couple of times a year because I could barely understand her. And it made talking so hard, right? But the older that I got on those summer trips, the more that I could see, even from North Dakota, she loved me and she prayed for me all the time. Like, I was one of the most important people in her life, actually. So, like, in the wall, on the wall in her, in her little room that she lived in for 35 years, she had a picture of me, she had a picture of Jesus, and she had the Lord's Prayer. And I, and I think about her life, like, 35 years there, she was so limited physically. She was wheelchair-bound, she was paralyzed on her right side, she was right-handed, she tried to write letters, but she had to write them left-handed. Um, you guys, but she could pray. Like, she had a hard time talking to people in the nursing home. Nobody could really understand her, but she could pray. And she did, for me, all the time. Now, unfortunately, she passed before I came to Jesus. She never, she never lived to see it. But about the time she was gone, that's when my high school friends took over. And suddenly, this whole group of bros 
was asking God to, to help me see. And so for the next few years, it's like all of a sudden I was just enveloped by Christ followers on every side. After months and months and months of saying no, 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 no to going to Young Life, I finally was like, fine, I'll go. And I went, and I, uh, I met this guy, the head leader, who was in his late 20s, and I'm like, what a creeper. <laughs> you know? I mean, what, really, you want to hang around teenage boys? Okay. I mean, he was a t- in his late 20s, his name was Dave, and he was a tech genius. He worked for Hewlett Packard. And he loved Jesus. And he wanted young people to know the, the love of God. And over the next year or so, until I graduated, he just invested in me at every, every chance he could. We would get together for breakfast or lunch, or he would come to my games and then talk to me afterwards, or all of that. And, and we mostly, when we got together, we just talked about life. But we talked a little bit about Jesus. And I asked some questions, and, and we didn't get too far, because mostly I just argued with everything that he was saying. And I was... Uh, it must have been super maddening. But it was David that took me to, the, to church for the first time in my life. At 18 years old, I went to church for the first time in my life, and he took me to, to his church. Battery? It's not flashing. It's working now, I know, but... Amen. Amen. No, it's flashing. I need batteries. Somebody. Check. Oh, yeah. By the way, some of you are like, why do you even have a mic? This is uh, like, I know my voice is thundering and awesome enough to fill up this room. It's mostly for the online people, if you're ever wondering about that. Also, if I wanted to like whisper and have more. Okay. (laughs) Dave the Creeper (laughs) took me to the church for the first time in my life at 18 years old. And, um, and he would talk with me, and, and I mostly would just kind of resist him and, and argue with him and, and fight with him. Um, but he just kept at it. He kept talking with me and hanging out with me. But what he, what he also did was he, he just kept praying for me. He was praying and praying and praying. And suddenly, it was like something was kind of starting to stir in me. It was very small. The next year, I, I, went, I graduated high school, went to college to play baseball. And the baseball coach's wife, Pat, was a crazy follower of Jesus. And she ran the college ministry. And um, this volleyball girl that lived in my dorm that was kind of cute invited me to go to church with her. And so I went with her. And baseball coach's wife was there. And then I was like on her radar. She's like, oh, you're open. And so she kind of befriended me. And um, and was kind of like my mom away from home. Like she was somebody that I found I could really open up to and talk with. And um, sometimes in talking with her, she would talk to me a little bit about Jesus. And I was a lot more polite with Pat than I was with Dave. (laughs) Uh, Because she was really sweet. And she was older. Like, you have to be kind. (laughs) 
But also, something was, was, was even more was starting to stir in me a little bit. And now, I was on Pat's radar, and she was praying for me all the time. And her people in her life were praying for me all the time. So then the next year, I had to move home. Some crazy stuff happened in my life, and I just went to work for a year. And I met a guy where I work named Don. And Don followed Jesus in ways that just seemed really beautiful to me and really sincere. Um, I was 19 at this point. He was 28. And somehow, like, we became friends. And Don started praying for me like crazy. And by this point, I was starting to get, like, really curious. And I was asking a lot of questions. And after many, many months of conversations with Don and starting to go to church to try to figure out what's going on, you guys, things, things clicked. And I got baptized, and I got started on this, on this amazing journey with Jesus. But what's obvious to me now is how much prayer played, like, played a role in all of it. From my grandma to my friends in high school to Young Life Dave to coach's wife Pat to co-worker Don, people were crying out to God all around me, asking God to help me see what I could not see. And he did. You guys, I've seen this over and over. There's a powerful link between prayer and new life. And my guess is that for those of you that follow Jesus that are sitting in here this morning, there was probably someone or a whole group of someones praying for you all along the way. For several of you guys, I know there were people praying for you because I sat with them and we prayed for your heathen soul. So as much as you want to take the credit, you didn't just wake up one day and get real smart and decide to follow Jesus. <laughs> people prayed. And some of you that are here today, you have people praying for you right now in your life. They're praying for you like crazy. And you're not sure what you think about all of this yet, which is totally okay. It takes time. I mean, it took me like years and years of wrestling and asking questions but you're here and people are laboring for you and have been laboring for you in prayer and they're continuing to cry out to God in prayer for you. Like maybe you have your own family members or your own friends or your own coworkers or your people, whoever they are, and, and here you are sitting in church. That might not be an accident at all. There's a powerful link between prayer and new life. And this fall, we're, we're in this series thinking about prayer and thinking about the kingdom of God in the last two weeks, we started thinking about our need for a little bit of structure, like building some basic rhythms into our prayer life. And so two weeks ago, if you were here or you watched online, I invited you guys to join Jen and I, um, because since June, we've been following a very simple little prayer rhythm. In the morning, we pray the Lord's Prayer. Midday, we pray for the lost. And then in the evening, we pray prayers of gratitude, just thanking God for ways that he's blessed us throughout the day, and we each kind of do this independently of each other. Every once in a while, we'll come together, but mostly it's independent. So I introduced that idea two weeks ago in part four of this series, and if you weren't here, and you didn't see it online, I recommend that you go back and watch that. I think it will, it will make so much more sense of what we're doing now. And then last week at church, we prayed our way through the Lord's Prayer. That was church. And Jen led that. And is she awesome? Somebody should marry that girl. <laughs> also, the prayer room experience was guided, for those of you that came, for, by the Lord's Prayer. How many of you were, were came to the prayer room? Yeah, a bunch of you guys did. 
Um, and that's just, that was just like one example of, of different ways you can sort of walk through the Lord's Prayer. And we'll continue to talk about that as we go on the next few weeks. But up for today is midday, praying for the lost. And before we go any further, I, I just I want to address something. I am so aware that it is wildly out of style to refer to anyone as lost. Like in our culture, that's got the ring of superiority, right? Or maybe, maybe even like a savior complex. But, but after thinking it over, I, I think that it is language that we would be unwise to discard. Now, there are words like evangelism that exist in the church that cause a chill to run down the spine of many. And that's because we live in a modern culture that's suspicious of salesmanship, a culture thirsty for authenticity, a culture that is distrusting of, of, of judgment and con- condemnation. And so we've all seen bad examples. But you guys, evangelism is a word that never actually appears in Scripture. It's a word describing a concept that was created by the church. So if the word like evangelism is problematic for you, then discard it. Just find different terminology that works for you. But the word lost is in a different category. Lost is not church language. It's Jesus language. And I think it actually reflects his deep compassion. In fact, I I like that Jesus uses the word lost as his preferred term to describe those wandering through life apart from God. Lost. I mean, think about it. Lost, searching for home, for safety, for rest, for who knows how long. Lost, that frantic feeling that runs around in your gut when you thought you knew where you were going until suddenly you realized you didn't. And you don't know the way back to where you came from or the way forward to where you hoped to be. Lost is a word of compassion, not superiority. And certainly not condemnation. Lost is how Jesus describes a soul separated from the Father. Not at fault, just looking for home and unsure which way will get me there. It's the term describing the ache of a, of a father that is separated from a child. You guys, when, when Kate was about 18 months old, I lost her in a crowd at the mall. Dad of the year. <laughs> I would give you all the circumstances in my defense, but. But you guys, she was lost for over 10 minutes. And it felt to me, it was long enough for it to sink into me, she might be gone forever. And so when this young couple came walking out of Nordstrom's carrying her, and she's like, wee, <laughs> I cannot tell you what I felt. Um, when I first came to Jesus, I, I had a, another experience that I'll never forget. I had a, a good friend um, named Tom that got, uh, got sick very suddenly and died. Um, we were both 23, and um, he had been in my inner circle going all the way back to high school. And he was as healthy as can be, and then one day he got sick. And he went to the hospital with flu-like symptoms and a high fever, and they decided, hey, maybe we should keep you overnight to hydrate you and monitor you, and three weeks later, he was dead. It was a mysterious thing. The doctors couldn't diagnose it or treat it, and he died. The night before he died, I was sitting next to his bed um, in the hospital at UW, 
And three weeks prior, we had been playing softball together and basketball together and all that stuff. It was just like so surreal. But the doctor said, hey, look, anybody who, who wants to say goodbye, this is your last chance. So he was unconscious, and I grabbed his, I grabbed his hand, and the best that I could, I tried to say goodbye. But as I was sitting next to his bed, his dad snuck into the back of the room. And he was so overcome with grief that he had not been able to get himself physically to go into the room for days. He just couldn't handle seeing his son like that and, and dealing with the reality of all this. But his family had urged him, and they were like, you, you need to, to go say goodbye to your son. And he knew this was his last chance and that to miss it would be a lifetime of regret. And he was so overcome with emotion that as he stood there, he was just trembling and shaking. And he leaned, leaned back against the wall to steady himself. And I, I like looked over my shoulder to catch a vision of him like that. And he just cried out. I love you, son. I hope you know how much I love you. I hope you can feel how much I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you. And then he collapsed and started weeping uncontrollably until finally he gathered himself and he snuck out the door. And my friend passed the next morning but you guys, I will never forget that moment. It's one of the most heart-wrenching things that I've ever seen in person. It was it, like it was overwhelming, to tell you the truth. But, but the strange thing happened. God met me in it. Because just as he left the room, I felt God saying to me, not like audibly, but I just felt God saying to me, Jason, I love you like that. And I got a visual of God's love. You guys, lost is not a term of condemnation or hate or judgment. Lost is a term of longing. It's a term of compassion. It's a term of love. And this morning, I want us to walk through Luke chapter 15. And um, I'm actually, I'm not going to like teach on it because this is very familiar to most of you. And you, you get the message of it. I just want us to feel what Jesus is insisting God is like. So I'm going to read it with very little explanation. And because this is so familiar to, to so many of you, I'm going to read it from an unusual translation. Um, I'm going to read it from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message. So here we go. Here's the setting. Luke 15, starting with verse 1. By this time... A lot of men and women of questionable reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Their grumbling triggered this story. So in response to the judgment of the self-righteous, these religious leaders Jesus tells not just a story. Turns out he's going to tell three stories to drive this thing home. First, 
He says, suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and lost one. Wouldn't you leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the lost one until you found it? When, you, when found, you can be sure you would put it across your shoulders rejoicing. And when you got home, call in your friends and neighbors saying, celebrate with me. I've found my lost sheep. Count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. And by the way, the, in using the word sinner here, Jesus is simply quoting the judgmental people. He's revealing God's compassion toward the people they've written off and condemned. But he ain't done. Story number two. He says, or imagine a woman who has 10 coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and scour the house, looking in every nook and cranny until she finds it? And when she finds it, you can be sure she'll call her friends and neighbors, celebrate with me, I found my lost coin. Count on it. That's the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. Different metaphor, same idea. Something of immense value is lost, and it warrants an all-out search. And when it's found, unspeakable joy. And then comes a third story. This one's a little more personal with a little more detail. Then he said, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the younger son demands his inheritance before his father dies. This was like inconceivably offensive in first century Jewish culture. It's like the son is saying, father, you're dead to me. I want no part of you. So give me my inheritance now and let me go live my life however the heck I want. This father doesn't want sons that feel stuck. He wants to be chosen. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to feel it. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. So he blows all of his money wildly, and now he's down and out. This is, this is rock bottom. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. So on the way home, I have to imagine he's rehearsing his speech over and over. Dad, I've sinned before you. I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired worker. But it turns out his father is more gracious than he ever imagined. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Heart, his heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a prize-winning heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. 
My son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. You guys, Jesus is, is trying to show us what God is like. Can you, like, can you feel it? All this time, his older son was out on the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. He told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef. Go, Eugene Peterson. Because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stomped off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look, how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who's thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go, with an, you go for an all-out feast? His father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time. And everything that's mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time, and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and he's found. I want to circle back to a parable we looked at a few weeks ago, a parable with kind of more than one meaning. Jesus one time said this about the kingdom of, kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. So as I said a few weeks back, this is a parable that has like multiple meanings. I mean, the first one, many people pick up on right away, which is God is the treasure. In other words, when we begin to see the treasure that God really is, any reasonable person who sees that would give up everything to know him and walk with him and have unhindered access to him. But there's a second kingdom principle here that's also true. You are the treasure. To God, you are the treasure. He has given everything for you. Like when Jesus was nailed to the cross, perfect love was executed. And that was always the plan. The Father gave his Son for you. And when we get real clear on the identity of Jesus, we realize the Son was himself God. Sacrificing himself for you and me. That is mind-bending. But that's what's so beautiful. So the, the kingdom is about two things happening simultaneously. Learning to treasure God while at the same time discovering over and over again how treasured we are. And for many of us, we, we quickly see like the truth of number one, but we struggle to really feel and believe number two. But in the kingdom, these two things are happening simultaneously. They go hand in hand. But I want to add like a third layer to this whole equation that just sort of naturally flows out of it. This isn't just about you and God. In America, it's always about me and God. It's an individual thing. But this is just as true about God's love for everyone around us. Like you have lost people in your life. You have people that are distant from God and he is aching for them. And so the third layer to this is your person, whoever that is, your person is the treasure. Now, he doesn't want captives. He wants, he wants children who choose him. 
So he will let them run to the distant land if they want, but he scans the horizon looking for them, searching for them, hoping for them to come home. So you and I will never lock eyes with someone that isn't a treasure to the Father. But people don't know that. They don't feel that. They don't see that. We started this series with a, like a modern-day parable from Tim Mackey, uh, the brilliant scholar that's behind the Bible Project, and talked about he was on a multi-day hiking trip by himself on Mount Hood. And one day, right in the bushes, off the trail, there's a woman wrestling around. And she yells over to him, can you believe all these huckleberries? And he hadn't noticed because he'd been, he's such an intellectual. He hadn't noticed, and he's a guy. He, 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 was, he, was in his, he was in his own head, thinking about theological puzzles. And he was so in his head, he had no awareness of what was all around him. He, did, he, he, he couldn't see them. But once he saw them, once she brought them to his attention, he couldn't not see them. Like for miles, the terrain was just thick with these dense huckleberry bushes loaded with all these fat, juicy purple berries. And for the next several days of the hike, he fully experienced the huckleberries. He said, I had, huckleber- I had berries as snacks. I had huckleberries in my trail mix. I loaded my oatmeal every morning with them. I learned that huckleberries keep you very regular, which is great on the trail. It was like all of a sudden, this whole layer of my experience got enriched. You could smell them in the heat of the day, and it was like what was already going to be a great trip just had this additional layer of richness to it. So later on in the trip, he was, he was praying, and he realized something. He says, I was praying, and I felt my attention being drawn back to that moment. I felt like the Spirit was inviting me to see something important. I realized the experience that I had that was condensed in those couple of minutes totally transformed the rest of my three days on the mountain. It was like a miniature parable of my own spiritual journey. I didn't change locations when I encountered that woman on the trail. I was in the exact same spot I was before. But the moment she pointed out to me this thing that was surrounding me, my whole experience of that place became different. My awareness became deeper. All of a sudden, I was having an experience that was engaging my whole body. I could smell the berries. I was tasting the berries. I was noticing all kinds of different things as I went further on from there. So the huckleberries have become a metaphor for him in his life of like the presence of God. And he has endeavored to heighten his awareness of God's presence and goodness and love through prayer. So he goes on to describe what's been happening. He says, I've, I've just begun to have experiences where all of a sudden this whole layer of reality is opening up around me. I have a hunch that it's always been there, like those huckleberries. But for one reason or another, I've been blind to this rich, delicious experience that's all around me. In fact, it has never not been around me, but I haven't been aware that it's there. And that was the gift of my huckleberry experience on the mountain. So we've been thinking about prayer and the kingdom of God and God's presence. And we've been thinking about it for ourselves. Like, you guys, I want to see the huckleberries. I want to experience them. I, I, I want to become more aware of God's presence for myself. But, but if I love people, then I should want it for them too. Like, just so you know, I want it for you guys. Right? I, 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 want, I want it for you guys who already know Jesus. I want you to have a deeper, richer experience of God. But I also want it for those that are far from God. I want them to see him. 
And this is not coming from a spirit of superiority. You guys, here's what I know. I am just one beggar trying to show other beggars where they go to find the bread. I was lost, but now I'm found. And I long for those that I love. I want them, I want them to get in on this thing too. I want it so badly for my dad. I want it for my neighbor, Chris. I want it for all the sweet people that Jen plays soccer with on Thursday nights that sit down afterwards and have a beer. I like having a beer with those people. But if I don't set up a rhythmic like way of, of praying for those people, I've, I've discovered that I don't really ask for it very much. But I've seen there's a powerful link between prayer and new life. But if I don't have a planned time to pray for lost people I love, what happens even for me as a pastor is I rarely do. Do I want them to know Jesus? Of course I do. But without a little bit of structure, life happens and I forget to ask. And so, so I can forget. But here's the other thing. If you've ever prayed for somebody for a long time that doesn't know Jesus, it can get discouraging. Uh, like many of you, I have, I have felt the sting of like nothing happening. You guys, I've been praying for my dad since I came to Christ 30 years ago. He's 80 now. He was my age when I first came to Christ. And you know what's happened in him over all that time? Nothing. At least nothing that I can see. I've, I, I've seen zero movement toward Jesus in his life or in him in any way. And so guess what? I've had long seasons of just not praying for him anymore because it's just felt so hopeless. And for years, without some sort of rhythmic way of, of praying, I just stopped pleading with God to break through to him. But over the past six months, I've, I've developed a new prayer rhythm and I've started like really pleading for my dad again, a lot. And I don't, I don't know what might happen so far, very little. But that leads me to something like that, something honest in all of this. Laboring prayer for the lost is slow and unglamorous. Laboring prayer. This is how a, a lot of like spiritual giants refer to praying for the lost. Laboring. They compare it to childbirth. Most of these spiritual giants are men. I mean, that's inspiring, right? <laughs> Praying for people that don't know God can be frustrating and disappointing. You guys, that is how it's felt for, with me, for my dad, with my dad, for sure. But I've also seen that when there's a breakthrough for someone and new life comes, and many of you have experienced that with someone. In fact, many of you are that for someone. When that happens, you guys, when that happens, and I've seen it happen, and I've been there when it happens, it is all so worth it. In the New Testament, experience of the kingdom of God is sometimes pictured as, as childbirth. Um, it often comes, in other words, after long, slow periods of struggle. Um, Jesus said it like this. He said, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. In other words, the birth of new life 
far outweighs the pain that precedes it. In the past few weeks, I don't know if you guys knew this, we've had four babies born in our Brookview family. Something's in the coffee. <laughs> I'm trying to keep Jen away from that, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> but you guys, what I will say is, as a man, I cannot imagine what you child birthers go through. I mean, I can sort of imagine. I got, like, stomach cramps once. <laughs> so, you know, I totally get it. I know just what you're feeling. <laughs> no, like, I, I'm so impressed with you guys. You ladies are so tough and strong. If men had to have babies, the population would plummet. <laughs> right, guys? Oh, yeah. But what I, what I see in you ladies is, is toughness because of the joy of new life. Somehow, anguish that I can't even fathom turns into joy. Um, one of the little ones born these past few weeks is uh, Rhea Ellersick. Yes, she is, Daddy. <laughs> By the way, my kids don't like it when I call other dudes in the church Daddy, but that's just, I mean, that's just literal. <laughs> Rhea Ellersick. And, and while all moms uh, face anxiety and discomfort around childbirth, um, Rebecca had like extra stuff to work through, if you know her story. Because when Carson was born a few years ago, it was, it was terrifying. Um, there, were, there were some things that went like really, really wrong. And it was really scary stuff. Now, it all turned out okay. But still, there was, there was, there was emotional baggage around all this. So last weekend, just last weekend, nice of you to come in and play bass this morning. <laughs> Tony sent Jen and I the, like the announcement with pictures. And he sent one that just, for me, it just kind of melted my heart. Now, I want to say, I, I'm, this is in the delivery room. It is mother and baby together, shortly after childbirth. And I did ask Rebecca's permission <laughs> to share this. But this image speaks so much joy to me. So when that popped up on my phone, I was like, whoa, at first. But then I saw the message, and I was like, oh, my gosh. And knowing the background, knowing the story, it just melted my heart. She had just been through the war of childbirth, and then you look there, and you just look at the joy. And, and you guys, this is not unique to Rebecca. You, you ladies, you amaze me. When new life comes, the labor is almost forgotten. And, and, and some of you have seen those you've prayed for come to Christ. You've seen it, you've been there. And when you see that person begin to encounter in an authentic way God's love, when you see the healing start to happen in them, when you see new life emerging, it is all so worth it. After three years of being surrounded by followers of Jesus, after three years of being poured into by, you know, Dave from Young Life and Pat, the coach's wife, and Don, my coworker, you guys, I was so thick-headed, but it took three years, but God finally broke through. And I got baptized. And so Don, my coworker, um, lived in Everett, and, 
and, and he would be there with me, of course, but I, I also called Dave and I called Pat because after all their prayers and after all that they poured into me, I just wanted to say thank you. And you guys, Dave, the tech guy, at that point lived in Spokane and Pat lived with her husband in Yakima. I got baptized in Everett and they both came. You know what? They couldn't not come. Like they were ecstatic. And here's why. I was a stubborn punk that did not move toward Jesus in ways that they could see for a really long time. I wasn't giving them any sort of encouraging signs, but they kept at it and they kept at it and they kept asking God to do what only he could do. Prayer for the lost is slow and unglamorous, but it's vital. Tyler Staten says, it's time to join the Holy Spirit in groaning for new life. And that requires persistence and single-mindedness and an acquired taste for the unglamorous. And I've discovered I need to build structure into my life. I can't just trust myself with all that's happening in my life to consistently remember to pray for people. Uh, since June, I've, I've, I've committed to praying for the lost at midday, and, and I have never been cons as consistent in my life as I have been over the past six months. Now, there are still days that I miss or, or I have to come back to it later in the day, but I've, I've learned that like setting an alarm on my phone is super helpful. But this is becoming a consistent rhythm and habit for me. And, and some days, my prayers for the lost are really, really short. Other days, I have more time and I can go deeper with it. But the key is having the rhythm built into my life. And I got this idea, as you know, from Tyler Staten, who says this about midday prayer. He says, pause to pray for the lost. And when I say that, I don't mean the abstract idea of people. I mean names and faces, real people that you have real relationships with and real interaction with. Pause to pray for them at midday, and that could be 30 seconds or a few minutes or an hour, whatever works for you. This is about rhythm, not about duration. It's about cultivating a sustainable habit where the blur of our days gets interrupted by communion with Jesus until it's communion with Jesus that orders the blur of our days. And that can happen in a minute or an hour. It doesn't matter. What matters is rhythm. So I pray through aspects of the Lord's Prayer in the morning, and then at midday I pray for the lost. Now, you might be going, well, why midday? Uh, what, what, what's significant about like the midpoint of, of the day? Why is that particular time frame worth kind of considering? Here's what I've noticed for most of us. In the morning, good intention and positive willpower is at its peak. By the afternoon, when we like zone out at our desks, when we mindlessly just like scroll on our devices, when we set our sights on our evening plans, we start dreaming about happy hour, dinner plans, or the show we're going to veg out with, you know, with on the couch. At midday, we have this insatiable appetite for escape, to run from the present moment like into my own thoughts, into my phone, into the work that I'm doing, until the day passes so fast I never look up, or into, a, into the better future that I'm, that I'm planning already while just trying to kind of escape the present moment. What am I going to do later today? Because this moment that I'm in sucks. 
at midday, the human tendency is to just turn inward, to spiral into the self. So is there a way to combat that pull? Well, what about intentionally turning outward just for a few moments? What about taking a minute or two or more, if you have it, to share God's heart for those that he loves dearly and ask him to move in their lives? I mean, let, let me ask you to consider something this morning. What is built into your day to keep you from just turning inward? Is there anything to disrupt the blur of your days? What if you ordered the blur around just a little bit of rhythmic prayer? Now, maybe you have a, a prayer rhythm and it's totally working for you. Great. Keep doing that. Here's my question. Does it include a rhythm of praying for people far from God? And here's, here's what I've discovered about myself. Without intentionality, I miss stuff. Like I hope to have time with my kids and I hope to have time with Jen and I hope to have time with good friends and I hope to work out once a month, you know? <laughs> but, but without rhythmic touch points, that stuff just doesn't happen without intentionality. And the same is true with, with people that I love that are separated from God. I, I can intend to pray for them, but if I don't have specific time carved out, my best intentions turn into missed opportunities. It goes undone. So for both Jen and I, independently, midday is now the time. So to close, for those, the, those of you that, that know God's love, and you're walking with him, I just want to ask you this. Whose prayers are you living in the wake of? Who has labored in prayer for you? And what has that come to mean in your life? Without Jesus leaving the 99 to go after you, not just once, but for most of us, many times without that, how would your life be different? And then a second question. Who might live in the wake of your prayers? Well, what if you kept asking God to reveal himself to that someone, and he did? What might that mean for your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister? What might it mean for your coworker or your friend or that person that you are thinking about all the time? I mean, just imagine, envision that person wrapped in the love of God, feeling it, learning to depend on it. Imagine that person getting healed and becoming whole discovering inextinguishable joy. Imagine that person letting go of anger and fear and shame. Imagine that person free from depression and anxiety. See, I, I think when, when God looks at that person, he probably imagines some of the same kinds of things, and it is beautiful. His heart is beautiful. And he's inviting you and me to partner with him in prayer because apparently he's designed a universe where he has intentionally bound himself to the prayers of his people. Why? Because he wants partners in the most important things. This is all part of a relationship with him. It's incredible. And we're invited into it. Father, thank you. I thank you for all of the people 
whose prayers I'm now living in the wake of. I thank you for all of the people who, who all of us are, are living in the wake of their prayers. And God, I just pray that you would help us to align our hearts with yours. I pray that you would help us to see people the way that you do, even the most difficult people. And Jesus, you said to love our enemies. That's so godlike. So I pray that you would help us, um, just help us to see the people and see the world the way that you do, to partner with you in, in crying out for something better and new for them. And I pray that you would move. I pray that you would move in big time ways over time as we labor in prayer for those that, that we love and you love so deeply. Amen.